Our scripture reading for today comes from Psalm 46 here. If you want to turn there on your phone or in your Bibles here or look on on the PowerPoint. Psalm 46. These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will, dwell, uh, God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war seas to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. This goes in the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower falls. Friends, please be seated. And would you join your hearts with mine in a quick word of prayer, asking God to send his blessings on these words for us today? Father, we come before you because no matter how much the world says that it's got it's, got its life figured out, we come open to the idea that maybe we don't that maybe there's need for change and growth for us. And so in this act of worship, in this act of simply sitting here passively, we pray that your spirit would be active at work, working these words into our minds and hearts this morning. Show us, O Lord, your heart for us. Show us your will that is good and pleasing according to your word. We We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'm going to do a little group activity. Um, We all have something we're afraid of, right? And I want you to just think of one thing that you're afraid of, okay? Just one thing, just one thing. Don't list them all, just one. And what I'm going to do is, on the count of three, I want you to say it out loud. You don't have to scream it, just say it out loud. I'll hear you. The room's quiet enough. Okay, you got it? You got it? All right, kids too, you, you participate. Ready? One, two, three. Heard spiders. That's all I heard, actually. (laughs) I saw some kids look at their parents. Um, Oh, heights. All right. The thing is, we all have something we're afraid of. There's fears that we all possess. And every time we show up to the workplace or with our friends, everyone's supposed to put on a good game face and say, that I'm not scared. But it's there. Fear is the most primal emotion or the emotional state that we're actually born in with, 
Like the second we come out of our mother's wombs, we come into a strange place uh, with the surgeon holding a scalpel, right? And you just think, what, what's going on as a little baby? Fear. That's what we're born with. It's in all of us. And I have to confess, like, I have fears all the time. I, I worry about what will happen to my family at times. I think about the future, and I, I, I fear maybe perhaps the next funeral I'll have to attend. I have fears about how church will go. And then I also fear clowns, just something about them, men in makeup. There's fears. And yet there's two options we can have to choose to do with our fears in this kind of emotional state. You, you can't really get rid of this fear, so you have two choices to make. Either one, let the fears dictate how you live, or you live with faith in light of all those fears. How can we do the latter part? Live in faith despite the fears that we may possess. And what I believe Psalm 46 does for us is teaching us how to do that. That in the midst of everything we could be af afraid of, there's still faith. And the psalmist breaks it this, uh, how we can pursue this type of faith in the light of all our fears in three ways. First, there's a place of refuge he wants us to see. Secondly, there's a presence that he wants us to be a part of. And third of all, last of all, how to be still in the midst of it all. Let's look at the first point here, place of refuge. When Psalm 46 is written, it's written for a community to sing and pray and meditate on in a time where the people of God found themselves in trouble. They're up against an enemy force with a far superior army, and most likely they were outsized for certain. Their weapons paled in comparison to what the enemy had. They're uncertain about the prospect of their lives. So the emotion? Fear. Yet in response to that fear, the community faced as a whole, the psalm reminds the people up front, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. That's what he says up front. Notice how there are no disclaimers. The psalmist doesn't say, once God conquers all your enemies, then you can know that God is your refuge. That's not how they understood this. See, but in our modern understanding, we want to insist. We want to insist, once I graduate or once I secure that uh, job and have all this job security, once I settle down with a family and have my 2.5 kids with a nice picket fence, uh, with a, a home to myself, then I can know God's my refuge. Doesn't work that way. God is our refuge now. To what extent? The psalmist says, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This is hyperbolic language, a poetic way of saying that even when the world turns upside down to crash and burn, God will still be your place of refuge. He will still be your place of refuge. Man, I think after a pandemic, this makes more sense. I'm, willing, I'm open and willing to believe that anything is possible. And yet, despite all the chaos of that, the promise is, I am your refuge 
That is God's promise to us in the trouble. See, the promise isn't, I'm your refuge when there are no troubles. Instead, it says, I'm your refuge in your troubles. In your troubles. This isn't a God who looks at your life and says, man, you you have a lot of chaos. You have a lot of craziness. You have a lot of emotional distress. That's too much for me. When you got all that figured out, I'll come to you. That's not it. In trouble. Whether it's trouble in the world or whether we find ourselves troubled, God says, I promise to be your refuge. The world is changing. And change always seems scary, uncertain, not knowing what's, what to really anticipate for our lives. I remember giving a kid, a um, college student, a ride home, and um, the question he asked me is, hey, uh, Pastor Amos, have you, ever, have you ever used maps before? Uh, not the one on phones, but the, you know, the thing on papers. I heard they used to exist. And he says, have you ever used one of those? And I, I, I had to admit, yeah, I've used one of those before. And he says, oh, that's pretty ancient. I wanted him to stop talking right there, but he kept going. But it made me realize how outdated I am. And now, like, my kid comes home, and he's learning coding in elementary, and I just think, I don't know anything about coding. I can barely get the code to my computer and stuff. And this kid's coding, and I just think, man, what's, what's the world come to, right? What's the world come to? It's amazing how much, how much more uh, kids know, and yet, but also at the same time, it's troubling for me because just because we get that much better, that means there's a greater capacity for evil that can be done, that bad things perhaps happen faster. We can have all the gadgets, we can have all the technology, we can have all the infrastructure, but evil, sin, it's still there, twisting and turning changing things in this world. Google laid off 12,000 people. That made headline news. And the whole tech world trembled, in a sense. Why is this happening? And everyone started questioning their own job security. Fear. The world is always changing, whether we like it or not. And it makes us reassess What can I be assured of? What can I be certain of? uh, What good is it to know all these things and to have this kind of uh, designer lifestyle with everything you want, but without having the conviction that the Lord is my strength and the Lord is my place of refuge? The world's changing, which means our trouble will only become more and more complicated in a sense. And yet, in spite of all the chaos, in spite of everything we cannot know, it's a God who shows up and simply says to us, my grace is sufficient for you. A God who promises to forgive you and to shield you in the righteousness of his son, to adopt you, to sanctify you, to sustain you, to let you know that he has loved you eternally and to be your strength and refuge. That's the kind of grace that God gives to us. That is what his place of refuge means. That this is his tender heart towards all of us. He's our place of refuge. And yet, how do you gain access to this? 
Like, God as our place of refuge, that sounds great, but how do I access this? Has it become real in our lives? We turn to the second point. It's all about presence. At the end of verse 3, you find this pause, Selah. It's indicating a musical break of silence. But pay attention here. From verse 3 to 4, verse 3 ends with this chaotic forces of the sea roaring and foaming. And then verse 4, you have this. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. You go from chaos to quiet into peaceful rivers, leading us into the city of God where the psalmist wants us to visualize a mighty fortress. And in this city, there is no threat. It is a perfectly sealed and safe city. And yet what makes the city of God secure is not based on what it looks like or what materials it's made of. Rather, what makes the city of God secure is the simple fact the presence of God is there. God is in the midst of her. That's what makes it secure. The point of emphasis that the psalmist makes is it's God's holy habitation. God is in the midst of her. God will help her. The Lord of hosts is with us. More than anything, in our fears, we need the presence of God. We need the presence of God. Jesus once said that unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God, or a.k.a. the city of God. And yet, what does Jesus mean by this? What does it mean to be like children? It's not a statement I can just ignore. So it's forced me to pay closer attention to what kids are like. And every now and then, I I let my kids watch shows like Daniel Tiger or uh, Octonauts or Dinosaur Train. But one day, they wanted to take a risk. And so they wanted to watch Dora the Explorer. So I let them watch in their room by themselves while I hung out in the living room. And minutes later, I hear screaming of fear, and they run out of his room, and he's coming to me to be held. And I ask him, what's wrong, buddy? And he tells me, he points to the room, so I carry him and walk into the room, and I find on the computer an evil fox named Swiper, who apparently in this show steals things. And in my masculine bravery, I just turn it off and let him know everything's okay. But I come to a realization Out of all the times my kids have been scared, not once have they turned to their beloved dolls, not once have they turned to their piggy bank collection, not once have they turned to anything else. Their automatic response is to turn to either me or Kathy. That's all they do. They turn to their parents. It's a primal instinct. And yet, is this not what entering the kingdom of God is supposed to be like? what it means to be kids in his kingdom. I mean, parents, fact check me on this. Uh, when, uh, when your kids are scared, where do they run to? They run to you. And yet it would be weird. Uh, uh, we would think it'd be weird if every time your kid was scared, they start to, to, to run to your wallet. Dad, give me your wallet. I'm scared. Give me the money. Where's Benjamin Franklin? Tell him to save me. Or if they ran and grabbed important documents of credentials and diplomas, give me all the documents. No. They run to their parents. They run to their parents. It sounds ridiculous as I say it. Entering the kingdom is like a child who trusts, 
who turns unapologetically without reservation, running to their Heavenly Father, that God is our refuge. I can think of no other way of being practical than simply coming into God's pre- uh, for coming into God's presence than for this precious gift of what we call prayer. You want to access the presence of God? It's prayer. That's where it's at. Whereas verse 1 says that God is a very present help in trouble. And another way of reading this is there is readiness to be found or there's enough in any moment that God is longing simply for his children to just come to him. Tell him our needs. Tell him our fears. It's prayer. What do you think this means? That God longs to hear his children pray. I feel like we have a, a hard time praying because we, we, we don't feel very good at it. It, it, it just, or, or we're inconsistent with it. But I think out of everything that we struggle with prayer is that we, we sort of feel foolish doing it at times. Because when you're praying for someone and, and you, they're, they're praying for a certain illness or a sickness to be removed, and what, what happens when we pray for them? We feel sheepish because as we're praying for the sickness to be removed, we sort of doubt whether God will show up in that moment. What if they don't get better? What if he doesn't deliver? And so it changes up our idea of prayer. We feel doubtful whether God will show up. And so we use reform language like, if it is in your will, to kind of safeguard ourselves from disappointment. When really the act of prayer is simply being unapologetic unapologetic and simply running towards your Father. That's what prayer is crying out our fears because you are his child and he loves to spend time with you in this way, in his presence. We want to recapture this heart of prayer together in New Life Fremont because it's what we desperately need. We need to be praying. Prayer for us, it's, it's not, as Eugene Peterson put it, prayer for us, it's, it's not like the first pitch that's thrown out in baseball that you finally kind of got it out of your list, and now let's get on to the main business. Prayer is not something that we just do. Prayer is part of our ministry. It is our ministry. Right? Prayer is not something that legitimizes us as a church. As a church, we believe this is our ministry, to pray, to seek God's will together. That's the type of prayer heart that we want here, that we encourage We're asking for you, all of us, together, running towards God as your Father and letting him know everything means absolutely nothing if you are not in this with me. Be my refuge. Be my place of strength. Praying out your fears. That's how you access God's presence, practically speaking here. See, God not only promised to be be our place of refuge, he, he says that he's our place of strength, a place of uh, a presence for us. And as we access that presence, there's a strange thing that happens. He calls us to be still, which brings us to our last point here. How do we be still? Now comes the hardest part about fear. Of all the people that Psalm 46 could have named in association with God, the psalmist at the end chooses Jacob the God of Jacob. The thing is, 
Jacob is probably perhaps the mo- uh, uh, least noble out of all the patriarchs. The least noble. Jacob was a schemer. He tricked his own brother Esau for his birthright. He lied to his own father Isaac about a ble- just to receive blessing. He steals from his uncle Laban. He's shallow when it comes to his marriage with Leah. He's always trying to work the system. And yet, why mention his name in this psalm, at least? Why mention the God of Jacob? Well, as the people of God are up against this powerful army about to wipe them out, the great temptation for them would have been to start scheming for themselves, to start strategizing. How can we make the system work for for us? How many swords do we need? How many bows and arrows? How can we do this without God? How can we do this without God? To which the psalmist reminds us, come and behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. You know what's being described here? The peace of the whole world. The peace of the whole world. Not exactly something that the people of God, at at least during this time, bargained for. There's no promise here that God will necessarily bring them out of their current struggles. Instead, this is the truth about how, what God is, has, or can do and will bring a peace to the whole world. That God is perfectly, uh, perfectly able to get rid of all our fears and solve all our problems, but that's not what is most important to him, according to this psalm. Look at verse 10. Be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations, and I shall be exalted above the earth. Be still. That word can mean loosen one's grip or to relax, which is a fitting word for this context where the people of God were gripping for their swords in battle. But I prefer the translation, let go. Let go and know that I am God. Let go and trust me in your fears. Let go of your scheming. Stop trying to do this life without me. And out of everyone that understood this, Jacob knew. Jacob understood. Because back in Genesis 32, Jacob feared for his life. His brother Esau was coming, unsure whether he wanted revenge or not. Revenge against his family is about to be taken away. His, his wealth is about to taken away. His home, his life. He's about to lose it all. And in Genesis 32, Jacob literally wrestles with God. But in this match, God tells Jacob, let me go. Let go of me. Let go of me. And Jacob wouldn't let go. Jacob wouldn't let go. Jacob wouldn't let go unless he received a blessing. And all he wanted to know was, tell me I'm going to be okay. That's all he wanted. Tell me I'm going to be okay, and I'll let you go. It wasn't uh, wasn't until he let him go that he realized that he received a greater blessing. Because in Jacob's own mouth, he says, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. My life has been delivered. All his life, 
Jacob simply sought for blessing in anyone or everyone besides God. It wasn't until Jacob wrestled with God with the fear of losing everything that he loved most that he was able to see the greater blessing, God as his refuge. See, the thing is, I don't know what kind of fears that you wrestle with today, and this idea of letting go and being still before God probably frightens us, or it's impractical for a lot of us. Why would I let go? Right? Why would I let go of my careers? Why would I let go of what, what I got going on in my life? I need the control. And yet God's call for us is to let go. Why do we fear? We fear because we love. And that fear is about the fact that what we love can possibly be taken away. So this message of letting go, it's impossible for us to simply just let go and trust God unless you're given a greater blessing. Jesus wrestled with God in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And his plea towards God was, take this cup from me. And yet, what was Jesus really afraid of? Jesus was already homeless. Is he afraid of wealth? Is he afraid of it all being gone? No. Jesus was ridiculed. His own disciples left him. Is he he afraid that people are just going to reject him? He already was rejected at that point. So what does Jesus have to fear? What is he afraid of? You know what it is? The cup of wrath. Facing God not as his father, but as the Lord of hosts who would bring full fury of cosmic judgment against the sins of the world. That's what he's afraid of. And yet Jesus faces us on the cross so that you and I can find refuge under the cross of Jesus, where Jesus guarantees us the promise of Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That this is the greater blessing, to be brought into a kingdom that cannot be shaken with a king who will not let you go. That that is his gracious reminder to you, that he's a God unwilling to let you go, that he's willing to nail himself to a cross for all of you, friends. In troubled times, what we can be assured of together in New Life Fremont is God promises to be our very present refuge in the troubles. And if that is your God, what have you got to fear? Let me pray for us. Lord, we we make a living just like Jacob scheming our way to the most optimal results possible. And we do it all without you, to be quite frank. It's easy to scheme, but harder for us to actually sit down there and pray and turn to you. Lord, in church, you allow this to be a place of refuge where it's okay not to have everything figured out. It's okay to mess up. It's okay to still wander. And yet you are the kind of God who will graciously find us, hold on to us, and never let us go. 
if we're in a season of wrestling, would your gentle hands pull our hands apart from the idols of this world and simply lift them up to you where we can be held? May we be like children, lifting our arms raised as an act of surrender, but also an act of worship, thanking you that you're this gracious. We turn to you even now, remind us time and time again, you are a place of refuge for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.